welcome everybody. Good to see all of you here today. Uh, there could be a lot of different things you're doing, but you chose to be with us today, and we're so thankful for that. Uh, we are also thankful for some good things that are happening to some of our members uh, here at Christ Church. So to the Vernelson family, congrats on James Watson being born on Friday. Hey, are, are you guys in here? Where are they at? I, I, there they there he is. Uh, uh, so happy for you guys, and um, we're going to keep little James in prayer. Uh, and also, Chuck Isles retired this week. Is that right, Chuck? Wasn't it this week you retired? All right. Good things happening. Good things happening. So, uh, you know, the Bible says we rejoice when each other, when another rejoices. We mourn when another mourns. And uh, we also uh, think about Linda Faulkner. We had her uh, Pete's funeral on Saturday. So we want to think about her today. Uh, now, we are continuing in this series called One Thing, and this series is really about uh, some of the Apostle Paul's writing. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote several letters that are in the New Testament, and Paul had this uh, ability to boil down some complex issues into like one thing, one main idea. And today, we're going to see how Paul explains the need for unity among Christ's followers. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a study of this or not, but Jesus prayed several prayers that are recorded in Scripture. Now, I would imagine Jesus prayed all the time, but only a few of those prayers are actually written down in the Bible. And by far, the prayer that is the most detailed, the prayer that is the longest prayer is found in John chapter 17. Within the context of that prayer, Jesus had something specific to pray for us. That, that's right. He prayed for us. He prayed for all of those who would become his followers. Jesus prayed that his followers would be unified. That's what he asked. And this is one prayer that really only you and I and other Christians can answer. So today we're going to be talking about how we can be the answer to Jesus' prayer. In John 17, 20, we begin reading, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me, through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So why do we need unity? Why? Jesus gave the reason. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's Jesus' prayer. And so finding common ground with other Christians 
is actually an answer to Jesus' prayer, and it opens the door for people who don't know Jesus to come to faith in Him. But Satan wants to create division, doesn't he? How many of you have had some experience, even this past week, where you felt like somebody's trying to create division? Have you, have you had an experience? And if it wasn't this week, I know you've had some. Our culture reminds us every day of why we should be divided as human beings. I mean, Eli came out and spoke to that first thing today when he mentioned the blue devils and the Tar Heels. And listen, I have, I feel like I have a responsibility to help those who are following the devil to, to come out of that lifestyle, to come out of that choice and choose the color of the sky. You know, the, the blue color of the sky. Um, but now, the good thing is that I love every Blue Devil fan that's here. It takes a lot of effort, but I do, because of Jesus. <laughs> In my, when I was younger, it was the Cowboys and the Redskins. How many Redskin fans did we have? Now, we, we can't say Redskins anymore, okay? But it's that team from Washington, that team from Washington and, you know, it, it would create division. And my team's better than yours. Race is a division. White, black, red, and yellow. Do you remember that little children's song that we used to sing, Jesus Loves the Little Children? I want everybody to sing that song with me. I know you all remember it. Ready? Because my voice is not very good anymore. I can't really sing very well. But you sing with me. Ready? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. What happened with that? What do we think when we get older? We don't need to love people that look different than us? Or we look at that as an opportunity. Now, I don't have to love you anymore. You're not a kid anymore. No. It seems like we think once we grow into adults, maybe Jesus doesn't love folks anymore. That's crazy. And of course, politics is a big dividing line, right? Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. And sad to say, even within the church, there is division. How many denominations are out there? I mean... So many different denominations. Christians have fallen into Satan's trap. We highlight the differences and we minimize the commonalities. And we as Christians often make no attempt to find common ground. And so we fall into the trap of choosing sides when there really should only be one side. That's Jesus' side. Are y'all with me? Even in the local church, and I've been in the, I've been in the local church my entire life, and so I think I can speak to this. It seems like people are looking for any little thing to complain about, to get upset about. Oh, someone sat in my seat, 
or somebody didn't talk to me, or somebody looked at me weird, or somebody didn't like the carpet, or somebody didn't like the music. I mean, we highlight the differences instead of focus on Jesus. Paul reminds in Ephesians 4 of one thing that will show the world the power of Christ. And that one thing is unity. Jesus can bring us together. And so our big idea for the day is that unity is achieved as we come together for the common cause of honoring Jesus. Would you all agree with that? When we can say, look, honoring Jesus is the most important thing that I'm going to do. And even though you might not agree with me on all these other things, honoring Jesus brings us together. Can we say that? Oh, I'm not sure y'all agree. I'm not hearing a, yeah, we can say that. I want you to write this in your bulletin if you can. This really should have been my big idea. I thought of it after we had everything finished, but When we are unified, Jesus is glorified. Do y'all get that? When we are unified, Jesus is glorified. Paul teaches this valuable lesson in Ephesians chapter 4. So, first of all, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, we learn that unity begins when we choose to live a worthy life in Christ. A worthy life in Christ. So let's read verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now that's an interesting phrase, a worthy life. Does that mean that I have to be worthy of my salvation? Can I earn my salvation, or or the love of God by being good enough or being worthy? No. We talked about that last week. We're saved by grace. But it is describing a way of life because of our calling. We don't walk worthy to receive salvation from God. We walk in a way that honors Jesus because He has saved us. Y'all get the difference, right? Now, last week, again, we talked about the fact that we do good works because we are saved, not in order to be saved. This is the same concept. Worthy living means that we strive to reflect the character of Christ. In our everyday life, where we work, where we play, where we go to school, in our family, in the way we treat our spouse, in the way we treat our children, in the way we treat our parents, we try to reflect the character of Christ. Paul went on to teach how we do this. Point number two, unity is maintained as we express the character of Christ. And I want you to think about that character of Christ and what that means. Paul writes in verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so if you look in that verse, 
you'll see four things that we are called to do. Four things that reflect the character of Christ. And the first is humility. We are no better than anyone else. Do you get that? We are no better than anybody else. I'm no better than anyone, even people that don't know Jesus. I'm no better than they are. I've sinned. I'm saved by grace. That same grace is offered to everyone. So I can't look down my nose at anybody. No matter what school I went to, no matter how much money I have, no matter what I drive, no matter where I live, I can't look down my nose at people. We do not seek to be treated like we are better than anyone else. No, that is not my seat in the church. <laughs> that belongs to Jesus, and anybody can sit there. Amen? This is the character of Christ. You remember we're told in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I got a question. If the Son of God can humble himself, <laughs> I don't know what would make us think that we shouldn't humble ourselves. How could we have pride when the Son of God humbled himself? And so in every relationship we have, in our family, relationships between brothers and sisters, between mom and dad, all these things, humility. As followers of Christ, we're called to be humble and serve one another. Now, humility really means we put others ahead of ourselves. Think about how this could affect our relationships with others. Now, you tell me, if you're around somebody that is arrogant and egotistical and is always putting themselves above you, do you really want to hang around them? Come on, tell me. No. Now, if you're that person, I hope you just heard that. Because if you're treating others like you're better than they are, they know it, and they really don't want to be around you. We're not building unity when we're acting that way. In fact, it is very divisive. When we act like we're better than other people, that attitude pushes people away. And yet we know God wants us to invite people in so that they can come to know Jesus. Amen? Now, the second character of God that is 
listed in this is gentleness. Now, in the commentary I read, this refers to domesticated strength. That seems strange, like a trained animal. In some versions, like the King James Version, it, this word is translated meekness. Now, meekness and gentleness may not be on the top list of everything that in our macho world we want to think about. But I tell you what, even a tough guy can be gentle in heart. Now, as I understand, wild animals have been trained to serve mankind, but believers have been tamed to serve one another, not compete with one another. The dictionary assigns the meaning of gentleness, uh, the quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. Now think about it. In this world today, where people are getting into each other's faces, striking out at those who have different opinions, I don't see a lot of gentleness. Do you? And yet this is the character of Jesus that we are called to. I think especially as men, we are taught we have to be macho and tough, and sometimes that means not being gentle with others, but I think you can be both. I don't think Jesus was a wimp. I really don't. I think Jesus was tougher than any of the toughest because he had to endure a lot more than we do. Jesus described himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we are gentle or meek, we reflect the character of Jesus. Paul would teach that others should be able to witness our gentleness. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. Paul pointed out another quality of character that seems missing in our culture. Think about how treating others gently builds unity. If you want to beat people into submission, and by beat, I don't necessarily mean physically, okay, y'all hear what I'm saying. It can be verbally treating people that way, trying to intimidate people. Well, what does that do? When somebody tries to intimidate you, how does that make you feel? You want to you side up alongside that person that's trying to intimidate you and force you into doing something you don't feel comfortable doing? No. And so this creates division. When people feel abused or threatened or belittled, how do they respond? I mean, we don't want to be around that. So for the sake of unity, God calls us to gentleness. Now that doesn't mean we, don't have, we can't stand up for things we believe in, but it does mean that we're not overtly aggressive and trying to intimidate people. Patience is the third thing mentioned in the text. Believers are to be patient with one another because God is patient with us. Both gentleness and patience we read in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. 
Patience means the ability to tolerate delay, (laughs) trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. How many of you have ever had a problem with patience? Raise your hand. Get those hands up. (laughs) I was trying to be impatient. I'm sorry. But you may remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in what we call the love chapter. Remember that love chapter? Some of you might have had it read in your wedding or something like that. Love is patient. And yet, many times in our relationships, husbands and wives, families, we're not being patient with each other. We're being impatient with each other. Patience is a major theme in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we read, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with who? So the next time your waiter or waitress doesn't quite get things as quick as you want, Or the next time that line is a little longer than you want. Come on, folks, we're we're Christians. We belong to Christ. We need to act like it. We need to live worthy of this calling. Patience is literally showing our faith and trust in God. We're not impatient because we understand God will get us there. We're not impatient with people because God loves them and and we're to love them. Are you exhibiting the patience that you should with others? You know in your heart whether you are. Do you get upset with people when they don't do what you want them to do in the time that you want them to do it in? Can you see how being patient can lead to unity? It is impatience that pushes people away. And finally, maybe most importantly, this word love. Our love enables us to bear with one another. Now, there's a word forbearance. It's a word that Paul used 12 times in his writings. And as God has long-suffering patience with unbelievers, we should have patience with others. We should continue to deal with the faults and weaknesses of other believers in the same gracious way. Believers must put others for whom Christ died before themselves. This self-giving emulates Jesus and is evidence of the reversal of the tendencies of the fall. In other words, we are tempted to be impatient, but the Spirit of God leads us to patience. And it's described as bearing with one another. And that means to show tolerance to one another. And by that, I don't mean that we accept, you know, sin and and we don't confront that. No, that's not what I'm saying. But it can mean to put up with or to endure the weaknesses of others. Now think about that. 
It, it literally means to hold up against a thing or so to bear with a thing. Have you ever had to deal with somebody that you just had to put up with? I, some of you probably feel, I, I just got to put up with that preacher. I don't. It isn't easy. But let's remember that others have to put up with us. And truth be told, we aren't always the easiest people to deal with. Because every one of us has our moments where we are impatient and we're treating others in ways that we shouldn't. Am I right? Yes. The point is that if you love people, maybe even more you love God, you will put up with weaknesses. Again, it doesn't mean that you don't try to help that person overcome those weaknesses. So if we love people, we will have acceptance. In other words, we will see them and understand that they are weak just like we are. We don't want to attack a person who is different than we are. We might not always agree with them, but we still love them. So can you see how this attitude can create unity? It is those who have no grace for others' differences who create disunity. And this happens plenty of times in churches. But God calls us to show our love through our forbearance. These are the qualities of the character of Christ that can help us maintain unity in Christ. But Paul makes clear that unity requires effort. Think about this. Paul writes in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The New English Bible translates it as, Spare no effort. Unity is the will of God for His church, but it must be aggressively and continually and intentionally and individually pursued. In other words, it's not going to come naturally. It is natural for us to focus on our differences. It is supernatural to focus on what we have in common. And remember, the goal is unity, not uniformity. It's not so that everybody looks the same, but it's that we come together in Christ. Believers must sense the need for the health of Christ's body, the church, and take personal responsibility for its maintenance. Friends, this is everyone's desire and job. We should all be working towards unity. It's not just the preacher, not just the staff, not just the elders, everyone in the body of Christ. This is such a needed truth in our world today of individual rights and privileges and personal preferences. You know, believers are personally responsible for the corporate health and vitality of the church. And that means you. Only active submission to the good of the whole can maintain peace. So, friend, you need to look at yourself. How can I bring about unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, this bond of peace is what Paul says binds us together. 
If you think about a bond or something that uh, is, it bounds us, this peace we have with Christ is like that. We have peace in Christ. There will never come a day on this planet where conflict will totally cease until Jesus comes. That is not the peace that he's talking about. But we can have peace even if there isn't peace in the world. Again, we have to work for it. We can't just sit back and expect it to happen. So you and I have to do what we can to bring about that peace. We have to work on ourselves to develop the character of Christ as we talked about earlier. We have to submit to the Spirit's leading. We have to reach out to others and minister to them. We have to give up the desire for conflict and debate. We have to give up the desire to always be the winner. This is part of our problem. We want to win all of our debates. But as Christians, I have rarely seen anyone uh, win a convert through debate. But I have seen enemies become friends. Non-believers become believers through the love of Christ as we love them and care for them. So make that effort, friends. There's one final lesson that I want to bring to your attention from the text. And that is that unity reminds us of what we have in common. There are plenty of reminders of our differences. We've talked about some of those, you know, skin color, music styles, bumper stickers, clothing with logos on them, hairstyles and colors, everything. You know, we can find all many reasons for division. But Paul reminds us of all that we have as Christians in common. I want to read these last verses. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What do we have in common? One body. That is the church. Now, we may look at Christendom and say, look at all the denominations, but every person who is a follower of Christ, who is saved by Jesus, has received the Spirit of God, they are my brothers and sisters. I don't care if they come to my church or go to another church. Y'all understand what I'm saying? One body, the church, a community of believers. One Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that indwells each Christian. One hope. Don't we share the same hope? Hope of the resurrection? Hope that this life is not all there is. One Lord, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for all of us, and all who trust in him will be saved. One faith. We share a common faith. Now look, I know there might be doctrinal differences. Uh, there might be some personal uh, differences between things that we like or don't like, music styles and things like that. But one faith, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that God is the God of the universe. He created this all. Jesus is His Son. We believe in these things. 
One baptism. We have a common baptism. Now, I believe that at least a hundred years into the church, there was only one baptism. That was immersion. That's the only way they did it. Now, man decided to change that over time. But in that day, when he wrote this, there was one baptism. And one God and Father, the Heavenly Father. And all receive grace. We're all the same in that. None of us deserve it, but it has been offered to all. And those who are Christians have accepted it. So with all we have in common, can we set aside some of those petty differences and be committed to one another as the body of Christ? This was Jesus' prayer. And you can be the answer to His prayer if you will do this. And when you make the effort to find common ground with other Christians, you're doing two things. You are answering Jesus' prayer, and you are showing the world the true nature of Christ. Now, I want to finish by sharing this story with you. I, I read about this. There was a book written about this event, uh, Boys in the Boat. And it was the true story of the 1936 University of Washington crew, the rowing crew, which went from backwater obscurity to a gold medal in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. That's a picture of these guys. It's an amazing story. Few sports carry the aristocratic pedigree of crews from Yale and Harvard and Princeton. I mean, that's a big sport out there. But no one imagined that a crew from Washington, of all places, could be competitive with these other world-class teams. And yet, Arthur Daniel James Brown shows how the University of Washington built a team from kids raised on farms, in logging towns, and near shipyards. They blew away their California rivals, and they bested the cream of the crop from New England to become the American Olympic team and they won the gold medal in the Berlin Olympics in 1936. They were a ragtag team of Americans, but there was a sense of unity, even with all of their diversity. Here's how Daniel James Brown explains how eight individuals of varying statures, physiques, and personalities capitalized on their diversity. He writes, races are won by crews, and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped up, overtly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge. Someone to hold something in reserve. 
someone to uh, pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow, all this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept the others as they are. It is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. Friends, I would say that the church is much like that rowing team. We need all different kinds of personalities with all different gifts working together for the good of the whole. Disharmony, disunity creates the opposite outcome. And so, friends, I want to encourage you to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Work towards unity. Work towards harmony. Because... When we are unified, Jesus is glorified. Let me close with this last scripture. Colossians 3.14 And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Father, lead us to unity. Forgive us of our pride and ego which causes us to fracture relationships. Help us, Father, to to try to exhibit this character, these, these character traits that Paul mentioned that we look at and we see in Jesus. Help us to treat others with those character traits. And not just people outside, but people within the body of Christ and people within our own families. Help us to live like that. Forgive us for buying into the divisiveness of the world. Help us to seek out unity through Christ as we experience unity. We know we honor Jesus because when we are unified, Jesus is glorified. And others will see Him in us and they will want some of that for themselves. Lord, may we live our life to bring glory to Jesus.